0: Hey, you all sang really good today. That was awesome. That was sweet. I'll tell you what. Hey, you know what's crazy? What I get to do for like 33 plus years, I get to stand up here and talk about things that I'm trying to learn how to do, right? Uh, Never think that I'm up here saying, hey, I've arrived and let me tell you all what I know and I'm doing. No, I am as screwed up as you are, right? And I'm struggling in this journey with Christ just like you are. And each week I get to share what I'm supposed to be doing as a Jesus follower with you. And it's an honor and a privilege to do that every week. And this morning, we're in week three of our four-week series on grace called Greater Than. Uh, The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And and that's my prayer for us as a church. And, And that's my prayer for those of us in this room and those watching online that we do not miss the grace of God because if we miss the grace of God, then we miss the point of everything. And listen, here's the deal. If we're not careful, uh, we can find ourselves replacing the grace of God with some kind of cheap substitute like religion. And again, we're not big on religion around here, uh, on rules and regulations that, that people think that somehow that'll help them earn God's favor or that can make them right with God. But it doesn't work. Understand, brothers and sisters, we are completely dependent upon God's all-amazing and all-sufficient grace. Amen? Amen. And so in the series, we're focusing on the simple equation, you know, grace is greater than. And whatever you can put in that blank, grace is greater than. And in week one, we talked about that grace is greater than our sin. And I don't know what you would put in that blank. Uh, Please share that sin with your neighbor. Take a few minutes to do that. Okay, quiet. Listen, whatever it is. Understand, grace is greater than the failures that follow you. It's greater than the guilt that is eating you up. It's greater than the shame and regret that can crush you and weigh you down. And grace is greater than the power of sin that seeks to control and devour you. Grace is greater than the power of sin that seeks to control and devour you. Grace is greater than all of that. Brothers and sisters, do not miss out on the grace of God. Like, don't be one of those Christians that, that has experienced God's grace, yet continue to live under fear and condemnation and guilt and shame. Maple Grove, it's, November the fourth, two thousand and twenty three, and I bring you good news of great joy that is for all the people. November fifth. I wrote in my notes on the fourth, but the day's the fifth, tomorrow is the sixth, thereafter that is the seventh. I bring you good news of great joy that God wants to free you from all of that, from all the fear, from all the shame, from all the guilt, and from all the regret. Amen. He wants to remove it, and he wants to remove the power that sin has out over you. Week two, we talked about grace a little bit differently, and, and we talked about how it's not just about receiving grace, it's about giving grace, and, and that grace is only grace if it actually works both ways. Again, it's fun to talk about receiving grace, but it's hard and it's messy to talk about giving grace to the person who hurt you the most and who deserves it the least. But nevertheless, we learn that grace is greater than our hurts. And our sin will never be asked to forgive more than God has already forgiven us. Amen? And, and, And listen, here's the deal. It's only when you and I extend grace to someone who hurt us and doesn't deserve it that we really begin to experience the fullness of God's grace. It's only when you and I extend grace to someone who hurt us and doesn't deserve us that we really begin to experience the fullness of God's grace. Get it? Good. Again, I don't want any of us to miss out on the truth that grace is greater than our sin, our failures, and our mistakes. That grace is greater than are hurt. And the truth we'll talk about today, that grace is greater than our weaknesses. Got any? Let's pray. Father, we humbly come into your presence this morning. There is no one like you. There is no one who compares to you. Your love for us is undying and unrelenting. Your word is true. And God, I pray that your truth rains down on this place today. I pray that we'll realize that grace is greater than. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, let's do this. Our text will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 12. You may want to turn there or whatever you call on our apps there. And here, here's what's going on in this section of Scripture. Uh, Paul is challenging the church in Corinth not to celebrate their strength and accomplishments, but to celebrate their weaknesses. Why? Because weakness gives space for God's grace to show up. Because weakness is the place where God's power is most visibly demonstrated. Now, what you need to understand about Corinth is that it was a destination city. It was a place that you went to like... Chicago, L.A., or New York City. It was where you went to experience culture. It was a place of pleasure, of power, of influence, and extravagant buildings. Sometimes you even still hear the phrase today, the the Corinthian style. And, And what that is is this architectural style marked by large columns that demonstrate power and prestige. If you go to Google Images and you say Corinthian style, that's going to show up. And listen, that's exactly what this city was like. I understand the Corinthians placed a lot of value on things like strength and education and accomplishment and power. And so Paul wrote to the Corinthians to let them know they got it all wrong, that they, they have it backwards. And you see, in between the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, some false teachers came into the church and they were... Winning people into the church over to their side and away from the truth. First, by discrediting and attacking Paul. Hey, you shouldn't listen to Paul. He's not who you think he is. I know he said some good stuff. But if you really knew him, you would know that he is a fake, that he is a hypocrite. And second, these guys are passing off what they thought were superior resumes. Saying, look, look what we've done. Look what we've accomplished. We are much more awesome than Paul is. So people were leaving Paul and the truth and embracing his false teaching, uh, which put Paul in a predicament to defend himself, but it also gave him a great opportunity to put a, a powerful truth to paper, uh, much like he did in the first letter he wrote to the church there. When all the fussing, all the conflict, All the fighting in the church about who was the most important, about which gift is the greatest gift, gave Paul the opportunity to teach us what the most important thing is. What the thing is we should pursue above all else. When he penned chapter 13, right? If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm only a clanging cymbal, Right? The reason he wrote that is because he was dealing with conflict, but yet that opportunity gave him an opportunity to to teach us an important truth, right? He didn't write that so we have something to read at weddings, though I've read it at every wedding. He wrote that. Hey, you know what? You guys don't know what's important. You guys are pursuing the wrong thing. You think these gifts make you great. What makes you great is pursuing love. Get it? Good. And so Paul, 2 Corinthians, In order to counteract these false teachings, he has to do something he doesn't want to do. He has to pull out his resume, which was extremely impressive. Okay, so you guys want to talk about what you've done? Here you go. Let's compare resumes. And listen, doing this, Paul is walking a very thin line. Because he he doesn't want the church to be won over by human strength, by human accomplishment, by human wisdom. And instead, he wants the church to delight in weakness so they can experience God's power. And so even in the midst of listing his strengths, he's ultimately going to challenge them and not to hide, run away from, or disguise their weaknesses, but to celebrate them so they can experience the grace of God more fully. Are you tracking with me? And I'm convinced God is making the same challenge to us today because like Corinth, we live in a culture and a time and in a society where we like the Corinthians put a great deal of emphasis on strength, on power, on success, on abilities, on accomplishment, on self-reliance. I mean, that's what we value. That's what we celebrate. That's what we strive for. But Paul's going to flip that over and say, brothers and sisters, what you should delight in It's not your strength, but your weaknesses, because in your weakness, there's room for God's grace and his power to be demonstrated. Get it? Good. And here's how he's going to pull it off. First, he's going to talk about his strengths. And again, he does this for two reasons. Uh, To show that he is who he said he is, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and that he is more than qualified, actually more qualified than these false teachers who are attacking and discrediting him. Number two, because Paul wants them to know that under their value system, he more than measures up. In fact, he's strong. You see, Paul knows that if he's seen as weak, and then he says, hey, celebrate your weakness, that's not going to mean much. Of course, a weak person's going to say, hey, celebrate your weakness. So he wants them to see that, hey, yeah, I'm strong. I'm strong by your standards. I'm strong by your values. I'm strong by what society says. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my strengths, and what you value, and I'm going to crumble them up and consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Because weakness is what we should celebrate. So here, how he begins in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 21. He says, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, again, these false teachers were coming in, hey, look how impressive we are, he says. What anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool. In other words, I can't believe I'm going to say what I'm about to say. But I got to do it. These guys have forced my hand. If you guys are boasting, I also will dare to boast. Yeah, whatever you say about yourself, I can say about myself. And then Paul goes on with his list. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. Man, I don't want to do this. I am more. I've worked much harder. Been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I'm going to pause there just for a second. A thought came to me, thoughts come to me, not every thought of mine should be shared. Uh, but a thought came to me this week, and, and I put it on Facebook. And, and it was basically this question. Is your version of Christianity worth dying for? Right. I mean, is it? Is it, my, it was to Paul, right? He so said, I'm going to die for that sometimes I think the American version of Christianity sometimes is not even worth walking into a building for, right? So is your version of Christianity, the saving of lost men and women from eternity separated from God, to help broken people be put back together again, is that worth dying for? And throughout the centuries, millions and millions of believers have said, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Okay, I'll continue. Unpause. This is crazy. Again, he was flogged 39 times with a whip, ripping his back open. I mean, that would hurt one time, let alone five times, 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea, I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, (laughs) in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast about the things that show my weakness. And then he continues the same line of reasons in chapter 12. This boasting will do me no good, but but I must go on. I will luckily tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I I, I was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Remember, we talked about this before. The first heaven is the atmosphere where the birds fly. The second heaven is where the stars are. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And it's not some place out there beyond the stars, but it's another dimension than in our current finite three-dimensional state that we can't see, right? It's the boat of God. And Paul said, hey, 14 years ago, I was called up there. And he goes, whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know, only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. Now, I believe this actually happened in in, in Lystra. We read about Acts chapter 14. He's drug outside the city and stoned and everybody thought he was dead. I think, think, that he actually was dead. And this is when this happened. Can't prove it. Doesn't matter if I can or can't, right? He was called up there. But I do know that I was called up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about. And and, and let me tell you something, a little moment of transparency. If by chance I was caught up into third heaven, you'll be hearing about it next Sunday. Like, it's going to be the title of my sermon, how I was caught up into the third heaven. I mean, I would be Instagramming, Facebooking, and tweeting like a madman. Hashtag, guess where I went? Hashtag, I saw heaven. I I might even write a book and call it, Heaven is for Real, How I Went to Heaven and You Did It. (laughs) And I would find a way to work it in every conversation. Oh, Georgia won the football game last night. Did you know what's called the third heaven? Right? I mean, every conversation, I thought that, but that was not how Paul responded. I'm just being honest. I probably would. That experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not going to do it. I'll boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I'd be telling the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see. Oh, that's so good. I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message. Hear that, preacher. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God. 14 years. And this is the first time he's mentioned it. Just in passing. He only mentions it to tell us, I'm not going to tell you anything about it. I mean, how does Paul normally introduce himself in his letters? Not a a um, Paul, an apostle, called up into the, fort, into the third heaven by God, chosen by God among all the humans on earth that bring the gospel to the... No. Usually as he does in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Christ. Now, slave is known, well, not for his resume, right? That's why they're a slave, and not for their heritage. That's why they're a slave. A slave is known primarily for one thing, the master that they serve. So Paul's approach to life and himself was, hey, all you really know, need to know about me is that I'm a slave of Christ. Nothing else really matters. However, he acknowledged that he has a, a pretty impressive resume. He was educated in an impressive school. He has the right credentials, and so it would be easy for Paul to be proud, to put his confidence in his strength, and so He's going to talk about the fact that God allowed him to have a thorn in the flesh, a weakness, so that he would depend on him. Now there's a lot of speculation what this weakness, this thorn was. We'll talk about some of those ideas in a minute. But listen, whatever it is, it was pretty significant because three times Paul hit his knees weeping and begging God, God, please take it away! Take it away! And God didn't. I don't know what it is for you, but I'm fairly confident that you can identify with Paul. I mean there's this weakness, this this significant, debilitating thing that you have begged God to change. You beg God to heal, you beg God to take it away, and it just hasn't happened. Master Hater writes the following A thorn in the flesh, such vivid imagery. A sharp end of a thorn pierced the soft skin of life and lodges beneath the surface. Every step a reminder of the thorn in the flesh, the cancer in the body, the sorrow in the heart, the child in the rehab center, the red ink on the ledger, the felony of the record, the tears in the middle of the night. Take it away, you pleaded, not once, twice, or even three times. You've outprayed Paul. He prayed a sprint, you prayed the Boston Marathon, and you hit the wall at mile 19. The wound radiates the pain, and you see no tweezers coming down from heaven to help you. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three times I begged the Lord to take it away. Notice the Lord, I mean Peter, excuse me, Paul recognized that it's from Satan and he also acknowledges that God could take it away if he wanted to. So it's from Satan, but God allows it. Listen, that's both a biblical and a helpful view for us when we experience the different kinds of thorns this life impales us with. Satan sends it, God can remove it, but sometimes he doesn't. And why doesn't he remove all our thorns? Well, one reason is, as Paul writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. Someone say sufficient. Sufficient. Have you ever felt insufficient? In the face of your weaknesses, my grace is sufficient for my power. The Greek word dunamis, where we get the English word dynamite. For my power is made perfect. That word means to bring something to its fulfillment, its goal, its purpose, its aim, its end. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And I really love where Paul takes us next. I mean, he finally, it took three times, but he finally gets it. He's like, okay, it, it, if that's how this weakness thing works, if, it, if my weakness perfects your power in me and unleashes your all-sufficient grace, then I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in insults and hardships and persecution and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm glad. I take pleasure in my weakness. My line is, for when I am weak, Your line is, then I am strong, right? And I want you to think about some of your weaknesses, right? For when I am weak, that doesn't count. That was spring training, all right? Uh, This is opening day, all right? For when I am weak, hit the then a little bit harder, okay? Emphasize the then. For when I am weak, baby, we're going to stop right there. I don't need to go any further. That was so good. I love it. I love it. Paul's like, yeah, I used to plead for God to take it away. Take away the thorn. I don't ask him to do that anymore. Because I now understand that that weakness, that that thorn, I would have done anything to get rid of. And those insults and hardships and persecutions, I would have done anything to have never experienced. I realize that's where I experienced God's grace most powerfully. I realize that's where God's power works best. And if that's when God's power works best, if that's where God's power is made perfect in me, if that's where God unleashes his amazing grace, then I'm going to celebrate my weaknesses. Powerful, inspiring stuff. But that's hard for us to do, right? I mean, we don't like celebrating our weaknesses, do we? Instead, we tend to run for them or deny them or disguise them or just simply we want them to go away. But Paul says, hey, take pleasure in that weakness. Be, be glad about that thorn that God won't take away. Because that's when you're going to meet God in His grace in the most powerful of ways. Grace is greater than our weaknesses. Got any? What I want to do in the next few minutes to help us get a better grasp on what God is trying to teach us here through Paul is to expand the equation grace is greater than our weaknesses like we did when we expanded the equation grace is greater than our hurts when we said that grace is greater than repayment. Grace is greater than revenge. Grace is greater than resentment. The first is grace is greater than our infirmities. And yeah, they all start with I, like the other ones start with R, because that's how we—that's how we preachers roll. All right, we we can't handle too many letters at a time. And, and again, the word thorn here represents not just this little thorn of a rose bush, but a stake or a spear that's impelling us. So not—it's not this this orange little stab. Instead, it's something extremely significant and debilitating. Now, some people think that hey, maybe Paul's thorn was a sin struggle, like a temptation it was dealing with. I, I don't think so. Number one, I think the word flesh implies that it is physical. Number two, I, I find it hard to picture Paul celebrating the sin struggle. I'm glad. I, I, I take pleasure in my struggle with lust. You know, I take pleasure in my struggle with my temper and anger and bitterness, and that's sexual sin. No, I don't think so. So I think it's some kind of physical infirmity. Some think he had migraine headaches because you know, he's in the east coast of the Mediterranean where malaria is, and maybe he had a bout with malaria. Some think it's his eyes. Maybe as a result of, remember the road to Damascus, he was blinded for three days, had scales over his eyes. And, and he says in Galatians 6, verse 1, as he, as he closed the letter, he says, see what large letters I used to write to you with my own hand. So he had to use large letters because his eyes. Uh, some think he may have had epilepsy. See, one of the pagan ideas at the time was that if someone, that, that if someone had a, a, was possessed with a demon, they would. If someone had. Ah, amen. <laughs> we got nice coffee cups for you. Commercial <laughs> break. That was intended. Now, that, that, that one of the ideas is that if you have epilepsy, you may have had a demon. And what they would do, they thought you had a demon, they would spit on you, right? Common practice. Well, in Galatians 4.14, there's a Greek word that means spit. And Paul is thanking the Galatians for not spitting on him. Kind of weird. Maybe he had leprosy. Bottom line, guess what? We don't know. But we do know it's significant. And we also know that after his first missionary journey, he had a doctor traveling with him by the name of Luke. A lot of different ideas. We just don't know. He didn't get specific, I think, for a couple of reasons. Number one, for the same reason he didn't talk about going up to the third heaven. He didn't want it to be about him. He didn't want the focus to be on himself and on his sickness, so he just mentions it as a thorn. I think another reason is so that he left it blank so that whatever thorn we have, we can put it in that space. Grace is greater than my. Understand, whatever physical infirmity or sickness that we're struggling with, or that one day come against us, grace is more than enough. Grace is sufficient. God's power can be made perfect in it. Yes, this sickness, this infirmity is a big deal, is a problem. And listen, in the face of it, we are not sufficient. We are not enough. We are not greater than, but grace is greater than. Amen? Amen. There was a story that captures, captures this idea in a book written by Corey Tenboom called Tramp for the Lord. And tramp back then meant traveling, right? And uh, we, that word's gone the wrong way. Okay, tramp for the Lord, someone who traveled for the Lord. Okay, I need to explain that in case someone thought, what is this book about? Right? Because that's what I heard when I first read the book. Like, What the heck, Corey? And she tells a story about a woman she met while traveling through Russia during the Cold War when Christians were heavily persecuted. Here's what she writes. Let me try the picture, this scene as I, as I read. This old woman was lying on a soft sofa propped up by pillows. Her body was bent and twisted almost beyond recognition by the dreaded disease of multiple sclerosis. Her aged husband spent all his time caring for her since she was unable to move off the sofa. In fact, there was only one part of her body that she could control it was the index finger of her right hand. And so, with that index finger, she would type all day, every day, often late into the night. But the woman wasn't just typing, she was translating with that one finger, she would translate the Bible and other Christian books into Russian. Her husband hovered close by and explained to me that sometimes it takes a long time for her finger to even hit the key once. And Corey Ten Boom says that as she looked at this woman's wasted form on the sofa with her head pulled down and her feet curled under her body, she just cried out inwardly, Lord, why don't you do something? Why don't you heal her? She says, her husband sensed my anguish and gave the answer. He said, God has a purpose in her sickness. Every other Christian in the city is being watched by the secret police. But because she has been so sick for so long, no one even bothers to look in on her. They leave her alone, and she's the only person in all the city who can translate undetected by the police. Now, if we saw that woman, we might not be impressed by her strength. Uh, we might feel sorry for her. Or we might pity her. But, but isn't it interesting that the, the one thing that seems to be destroying her, uh, the one thing that she would most likely want to change, the one thorn she would like to have removed, is the very thing that God used most powerfully. Honestly, his grace came into that space, and his grace was sufficient. His power was made perfect in that weakness, and was brought to its purpose, fulfillment, and end And she made a difference. Grace is greater than our infirmities. It's true. It's true. I've seen it, and so have many of you. About 30 years ago, I saw up close and personal the sufficiency of grace and his power being made perfect in weakness as my first wife, Judy, battled cancer for two years and then went home. Here's a picture that was taken three weeks before she went home. You know, does she look defeated? She never had a moment of defeat. Grace was greater than her cancer, right? Grace was greater than her cancer. I mean, I saw God's grace come in and fill up her place of weakness with power for his glory. And I saw countless people surrender to Christ and be saved. God used that, right? God's grace came in and used that, right? Didn't take the thorn away, but he used it for his glory. Amen? I like this quote by Paul Butler. Faith with God's grace, someone say, faith with God's grace, grace. produces divine power and victory in what the world calls weakness and defeat. Amen. Amen, right? Next, grace is greater than our inabilities. Now, usually when we hear the word weakness, we associate it with our talents or abilities. Have you ever been on a job interview and they ask that question you hate? So, tell me, what are some of your weaknesses? And you do not want to tell them the truth because they won't hire you. So, you try to come up with something that sounds like a weakness, but it's really a strength. So, you say things like, you know, I'm a very driven person. It's my weakness. It's kind of a struggle that I have. I mean, if I see something that needs to get done, I just got to do it. I'm trying to work through it. <laughs> but, but if you hire me, I will do my best to keep it at bay, right? It's just this weakness that I have, right? Yeah, sure. They're probably not going to hire you. But that's sort of what we do, right? We disguise our weakness and we announce our strengths. We don't want people to know that we're struggling. Years ago, a book came out. Maybe you heard of it. It did kind of well. A business book called Strength Finder, where you would look and find, hey, here's what my strengths are. I think Paul would recommend a different book by a different title. He would recommend Weakness Finder, where you identify your weaknesses. Where you look at areas of your life and say, where you're weak, where you don't have what it takes, where you lack the ability and you say, that's a weakness. And that means God has an opportunity to show up in that place and really demonstrate his power. So Paul's like, instead of celebrating my strengths, I'm going to celebrate my weaknesses because it's where God's grace is going to meet me in the most dramatic way. No, I'm not going to run away from my weaknesses. I'm not going to hide them. I'm not going to disguise them. I'm going to embrace them because that's where I know God's grace and power are experienced fully. And that's hard to do, right? It goes against, you know, what most of us instinctively do. Now, Now, being a simple person, one of my favorite verses is, Acts 4 13. I know you've heard it before. The Pharisees, religious leaders, got Peter and John standing before them. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Yeah. What astonished the leaders that these guys were so ordinary? I understand it was their ordinariness that make them so impactful. It was because they were ordinary that God's power stood out. Uh, no, they didn't have the right credentials. They, they, they didn't have the right resume. They didn't have the right abilities and talents and strengths. But look what they're doing. Again, it was the ordinariness, not their weakness, that made them all the more, all the more powerful. Which, by, by the way, is the theme we see throughout all the Scripture, right? God's power being made perfect in the lives of ordinary weak people. I mean, you have Joseph, a slave and a prisoner, saving God's people from genocide, becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt. You have Moses, an 80-year-old fugitive who didn't speak very well, walking into the throne room of the greatest power in the land and demanding that he let God's people go. You have an inexperienced, fearful guy by the name of Gideon taking on an army of 135,000 men with 300 people armed with torches, and clay pots. You have a shepherd boy named David stepping into the valley to face a a giant with nothing more than a sling and a stone. You have an orphan girl named Esther who becomes queen and saved God's people from genocide. You have a poor teenager named Mary and a blue-collar worker named Joseph becoming the parents of God the Son. You have unschooled ordinary men in Fishermen, tax collectors from the bad part of town turning the world upside down. Grace is greater than your infirmities, grace is greater than your inabilities. In fact, in God's economy, you've heard this before, but it doesn't mean it's not true. In God's economy, it's your availability, not your ability that all of me matters, right? It's your availability. Because usually people that have all kinds of ability are too worried about building their own kingdoms to have time for God's kingdom. It's your availability. Get it? Good. Next, grace is greater than our insecurities. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't like being vulnerable. I don't like to say things like, I need help. I'm having a tough time. I'm stuck and I can use a hand. I'm in over my head. I don't have what it takes. I'm not sure what to do. But listen, here's a problem. God's grace meets us at the point of at the point of our vulnerability. Bottom line, if we really want to know and experience God's grace and His perfected power in us, we have to be vulnerable. We have to be honest about our weaknesses. Grace is greater than our insecurities. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm glad to boast about my weakness so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure by weakness and in an insults, hardship, persecutions that I suffer. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Understand, what God is teaching us through Paul is that we need to be glad and take pleasure and delight in those things. You know, those moments where you, you just don't know what to do. Those moments where You don't have what it takes. There's moments where you feel overwhelmed. There's moments when the task seems too big for an ordinary, unschooled person like you. There's moments when you feel vulnerable and insecure. There's moments where you can't do it or you're afraid to try because you might fail and look stupid. Because it's in those moments where God's grace and power is most clearly demonstrated. It's true, right? Ask Moses, ask Gideon. It wasn't their strength. Ask Dave, it wasn't their strength. It was their weakness that he amplified and turned into a strength for his glory. Therefore, doesn't it make sense to step into those insecurities? But again, that's hard to do. I know it is for me. You know, after high school, I joined the Navy. And after two years, I served on submarines from the age of 20 to 28. You know, I got my dolphins on my first patrol. I qualified engineer watcher of the watch, engineering watch supervisor, And not longer than that, I was given the opportunity to qualify for the chief of the watch. It was like the head enlisted guy in the control room, Uh, 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 Most engineering guys didn't get to do this. Pretty cool for a 20 year old kid. Um, But I didn't do it. I didn't go after it. Now, I said it was because I didn't want to stand watch with a bunch of forward pukes. I worked in the F. Forward pukes are coners. That's what we call the guys up front. I'm not going to stand watch with a bunch of forward pukes and coners right? Here's a picture of the control room. So I've been much better looking than that dude, but that could have been me. <laughs> and I have my John Denver submarine glasses on. So I didn't do it. You know the re- reason why I didn't go after it? Because I would rather not try than to be put in a position where I had to ask for help, or where I tried it and I, I couldn't do it. And everyone knew I didn't have what it takes. Now, I like to say that three days later, they were showing Rocky III in Cruise Mess, And I watched that, and I got the eye of the tiger, right? Rising up, back on the street. Okay, anyhow. If, you don't, if you've not seen Rocky III, you are not, a, never mind. I would say you're not a Christian, but you are, even if you haven't, but it's a good one. A lot of good analogies there, but I, I did it. I never did. And maybe that's okay on a submarine. Maybe that's okay in the control room, but that's not okay in life. It's not okay in your home. It's not okay in your marriage. It's not okay as a Jesus follower. It's not okay in your ministry. I'm saying it's not okay to say, well, look, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know if I can do it. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to stay on the bench and i keep standing on the sidelines because I'd rather not try than fail. And you know, I, I can't help but wonder how many times we've done that. How many times we missed out on God's grace and power being perfected in us I wonder how many times we've, and this we've definitely includes Steve, we miss out on God's grace and power being perfected in our lives, not because we were not strong, but because we were too proud to be weak. We are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, right? Yeah. We're weak, but, but he's strong. And, 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 and Paul, as he wrote this letter, before he penned the first words, he came to understand the power of weakness. Here's what he says in the opening words of this letter. Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, remember the pressure resume you had about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia? We were crushed and overwhelmed. Ever been there? Have you ever been crushed and overwhelmed? Paul was. He's owning it. Beyond our ability to endure. And we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, someone say, but as a result, we stop relying on ourselves and learn, we got to learn, right? Because we're stupid, <laughs> at least I am. Learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. I don't know, maybe today you're at a place where the weight is too much, where the pressure is too intense, where the task is so overwhelming that you know you can't do it and you're finding that your default mode of, hey, I can handle it, is not going to work this time. And if that is where you are, it is my prayer and God's desire that you put your hope and trust completely in him. Amen? Amen. Not a bad idea because he is a God who raises the dead, who breathes out stars, who was and is and always will be. Amen? Amen? And so I was just thinking through this idea of grace being sufficient and being all that we need. And, and I, I want to, as we close, I, I want to try to help, help capture this by a word picture a guy painted a while back about this very topic. So I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to, in just a minute, to close your eyes. And this won't be weird, or maybe it will be weird, right? Uh, but close your eyes. Are they closed? Yeah, go ahead and close them. (laughs) And, And just picture what I'm describing. So I want you with your eyes closed to picture that you have a cup in your hand. Maybe it's a glass, a mug, but it's a cup. And you look down and it's empty. And I want that empty cup then to represent kind of the point of vulnerability, to represent the weakness in your life and inability and insecurity and infirmity, a difficult time. And now picture yourself walking over to a hose that's coming out of a huge wall and you, you can't see around the wall and you don't know what the hose is connected to but you turn it on and the water starts coming out. The water represents God's grace. And it comes out of this hose and it starts to fill your cup. Not, not very fast but it's a steady stream. You're not even sure it's going to fill it to the top but it does. And just as it makes it to the top the water turns off. Now picture yourself a little later coming back this time you're carrying a bucket. Maybe you've had a little bit of a health scare, or maybe you're struggling in a job at school or in a relationship. Maybe you can barely cover the bills, and you just need some grace, but your bucket is a lot bigger than your cup. And it's a pretty big bucket. bucket. And as you turn the hose that's coming out of the wall, you're not sure there'll be enough to fill your bucket, but you turn it on, and slowly the water fills a bucket, and sure enough, Right as it gets to the top, the water stops. Now picture yourself sometime later, you come back with a a wheelbarrow. And you need a lot of grace this time because you've lost your job and with it your confidence. Your marriage is in pretty rough shape and you feel overwhelmed. Your children are going through some serious stuff and left you exhausted. Exhausted. Bottom line, you're going through tough times and you're not sure how long you can tread water and you need some grace. So you grab the hose and you turn the water on again and it slowly begins to fill up the wheelbarrow. But you're pretty sure it's not going to be able to do it because it's a big one. Sure enough, as it reaches the top, the water turns off. And and one more. You come back again. This time you're driving a semi-truck and it's connected to a massive tractor-trailer that's pulling a water tank and it's completely empty. And you know there won't be enough water to fill this tank. You know that, but you'll you'll take what you can get. You found out that the cancer is terminal. You found out the company you sacrificed everything for is going under. You found out about the abuse. You found out about the betrayal. And you know, you know there won't be enough water, but whatever you can get, you'll take. And so you turn the hose on and the water starts to slowly come out and it takes a while. It takes a long time, but eventually you're amazed as it fills the entire tank. At this point, your curiosity gets the best of you and you look to either side of the wall and you're wondering, what is that hose connected to? And you realize you can't walk around the wall. And yes, the wall is a metaphor too and it has to be torn down. You have to tear down the wall, but tearing down the wall it's hard work, but it, and it can be painful. Oftentimes, these walls are built up over many years, but you do. You tear it down. And when you tear it down, you follow the hose to its source, and there it is, miles and miles and miles, as far as you can see, is the ocean of God's grace, like it is endless. You can open your eyes. And listen, whatever size of the container you come to God with, that's what he'll fill. And my encouragement to you and to I is to back up our truck, to identify and understand and delight in our weakness, in our infirmities, in our inability, and in our insecurity. Because when we are weak, he is strong. And listen, as much space, as much space as you can identify as a weakness, that's what God's going to fill. If you have an infirmity, an inability, insecurity, and you act like you got it, you can handle it, you act like you can fill that cup of your own, then God says, hey, then you're not needing me. But the minute you come to him empty, he is more than willing to fill that up. Amen? It's November the 5th, 2023, and God wants me to tell you that his grace is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you just for this paradox. It, it doesn't make sense to us. You know, you know, in our economy of things that when we're weak, we're strong. But God, those of us who experience your grace in those moments, we get it. We understand it and we celebrate it. It doesn't mean that we don't want the thorn to go away. It doesn't mean that we don't wish we didn't have to go through those times that we went through. But it does mean, God, that you can redeem it and that your grace can meet us there when we're the emptiest and we're the most vulnerable. It does mean, God, that in those moments, your power has the most potential to be clearly demonstrated. And so, God, would you let us not be afraid to Step into it, to to move toward our weaknesses, to step into those vulnerabilities so that we can experience the greatness of your grace because your grace is greater than. It's greater than our infirmities, it's greater than our insecurities, it's greater than our inabilities, and it's greater than our sin and our hurts. May we tear down those walls. And open up the faucet to your grace. Amen.